Welcome back, everybody. Um, you are listening to the corresponding author. My name is Stephanie Hicks, and I'm here with my co-host, John Michelli. And today, I'm really excited that we're shifting gears from the postdoc discussion to computing. So this is something that John and I do daily, <laughs> if not hourly. <laughs> yeah. um, and so there is a paper that came out in 2014 that um, John is going to give us a summary of on computing, and then we're going to discuss it. Sound good? All right. So the uh, paper title is Best Practices for Scientific Computing. It's in 2014, PLOS Bio. Uh, first author, Greg Wilson. Uh, last author, Paul Wilson. So I'm just going to just read off some of the summary of best practices from their uh, kind of summarization, <clears throat> and then I think we'll discuss those. How's that sound? Yeah, that sounds good. All right. So number one, write programs for people, not computers. So that's kind of about being more readable for a human than computers. So I think like elegance is great, but definitely make sure you can you can read stuff. Um, let the computer do the work. Make the computer uh, repeat tasks. That's what it's good for. And automate workflows. So make incremental changes. Uh, work in small steps. Use a version control system and put everything you can under that version control system. So don't repeat yourself or others. So every piece of data must have a single authoritative representation in the system, modularize code, reuse code instead of rewriting it. So we'll talk about some rules of thumb there. Plan for mistakes. Uh, use off-the-shelf unit testing. Uh, that's number five. Optimize software only after it works correctly. I think this is a reworking of Don Knuth's that the... Um, Pre, it's like optimization or premature optimization is uh, the root of not all evil, but the root of some bad things. Uh, document design and purpose, not mechanics. And then collaborate. Use pre-merge code reviews. Use an is issue tracking tool. I think these are these are all really good best practices for scientific computing. So I wanted to get your thoughts on any of those, if any of those jumped out as more important than the others in your opinion. Well, first, because, you know, we are an academic data science podcast, I will say that I find this paper fascinating and incredibly useful. I mean, these are all wonderful suggestions. But the thing that, you know, tugs at my heart or the thing that I'm like struggling with is we are in an academic setting, right? And so there's a cost trade-off whenever you come to write papers um, which incorporate software. So in an academic setting, we're typically publishing papers and with that comes software. And I, in an ideal world, we would be able to do all of these things, right? Like we would be able mm -hmm. to unit test. We would be able to write extensive documentation. We would be able to, um, to think about all of these things very deeply, code style, formatting consistently. However, in my experience, one thing that I've noticed about academics is that there's not a real incentive to implement these best practices. Like you as a scientist, data scientist, have to go out of your way almost and find the time to implement these things. So I I like to spend the time personally doing these things. It brings me like self-satisfaction. Um, but I just know in general, there's, there's not a real incentive, at least in the academic world, to make this happen. So I find this paper fascinating in the sense that I'm curious who they thought the audience was, because while everything they're saying here is true, I'm not sure, like, 
I, I struggle to identify who their audience is. Like, are they trying to convince academics to do this? Because I feel like the world of industry is on board, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. I think different departments have different things. I would say, you know, computer science, you, sh- you probably should be doing this if you're creating software. That's like a, a, a singular byproduct. Like that is a method in your field. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think also bioinformatics people, uh, bioinformaticians, like they might have a different setup where this is really the end product. But for example, because we're both in biostatistics, right? A lot of times the software comes out of a method. And I agree with you, like a lot of people care about the method and some people, not the same subset and a different subset care about the implementation. And they're not, that overlap is not a hundred percent. And the journal missions are not a hundred percent overlapping with those two ideas. So I personally think, you know, especially for, you know, anything we're doing a lot of the times in certain applied work, they care about like, you did this analysis, maybe we can reproduce it with some code, but not necessarily turning that method, even if you created a new method in that analysis into software. And then even these things, code reviews, things like that, almost none of them are, you're, you're right, are not funded or not, um, I wouldn't say not valued, but they are very much on the wish list category. I think, I, I phrase it as incentivized. I mean, it's really like, <laughs> yeah, um, it's something that, you know, could be incentivized, like if people wanted to reward that. And I feel like that is changing. I mean, maybe so, maybe that's less so now than it was like 10 years ago. So I should probably give credit where credit is due. However, I would say in general, (laughs) there's not like a strong incentive to go out of your way to do code review and things like that. However, I will say just me personally, I am very, I guess, judgy when it comes to looking at a paper and what software comes with it, like I, I'm able to, I mean, I, I don't know if this is good or bad. Um, I have a biased lens for papers that a don't maybe don't even provide any code whatsoever um, compared to data that or code that is just like in an R script or a Python notebook, but that's not necessarily like, they claim it's a software package and they claim that like they can do something, but it's not really a software package. It's not, but it takes a lot of work for me to be able to actually use it. Um, maybe there's not a lot of documentation. And so if they have like a GitHub repo, that's like, you know, better than most. But then if they go out of their way and create an R package within the GitHub repo, or they go out of their way and submit to CRAN, for example, um, or you know a cousin repository like Bioconductor, then I am I'm judging, I guess that software. So on one hand, but you're I, judging it more highly than that that went through those hoops, right? Yeah, I, and I appreciate that. Like I I feel like the person probably or the developer of the software went out of their way to do these things like unit tests, for example, or having a vignette as part of your package, for example. Um, if you're, if that's what you're doing, like it makes the software more valuable, even though it takes time and effort away from potentially other things that you're doing. And so I'm really appreciative of it. And I actually view the science better. I mean, like Mm -hmm. I I view it as more valuable because I can actually use it. Do you, how do you think about it? 
No, I, I feel I feel the same way. So I, I, I kind of think I'm trying to think of the the continuum. So like on one end of the continuum, it's like we did this and trust us and we're not releasing our code or our data or anything. Like we're scientists, like we trust right. us, right? And then like the slightly over than that is here's our code, but it's in like a PDF and you can't copy it. Right. It's like a picture yeah. of something. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then it's, yeah. And then you get like, here's an R script and it's like, you know, I, I, there is no judgment per se, but it's like if I see hard coded pads or thing like things like that, it's just like okay, this is not built for someone else. And then it's like an R script that is totally bundled, maybe in like some sort of project based structure. It's like okay, that's better, and that and that's good. In, and and that part I think is probably in some respects not the pinnacle, but it's really good. Like that's where I think a lot of the standard in science is now for a lot of papers. And I think the reason it could and should stay there for a lot of things because we do not typically have this discussion that there is a chasm between being a user and being a developer. Oh, yes. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> like it is not like, hey, I wrote this R script and it's like, then I then the next day I turn it into an R package. It was like, no, it's, it, I mean, you can, but turning it into a good usable package that another person can use is a totally different animal. So I definitely do judge them differently. And because I, 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 as someone who's gone through that process, I know how many checks along the way kind of probably went through, how many tests, things like that. And, and really, especially like you've tested way more when you're putting it into that framework than you would just a script and you find stuff, you find bugs. And then yeah. if they have a paper that wrote about the software, it's even higher, mm -hmm. especially because... I have, I've written a lot of packages and some of them are good. My first one was like terrible. Wait, how many right? are you going to say are good? <laughs> like I'll go, I'll go with like 10. Let's say 10 are good. 10 um, solid packages. I like it. I, you know, I have like a lot of them. So like 10 is not a high, percent, high percentage, but um, when I went, I actually wrote papers about a few of them. And when I went to write it down, Right, you you write it down in like some logical steps. It's like, well, this thing returns this thing, which is like the output, and that's what you use. And then you should use it in this next thing. And as I've done that, I realized, oh, why the heck wouldn't you include like this output in that in that object? Or why would you do it this way? It doesn't make any sense. So when you actually start to write it out, how the the package is supposed to work or flow together, then you are also realize like this doesn't make any logical sense to a user and I'm trying to explain it to them. So you yeah. like a lot of times when I write about a package, I refactor the package as I'm doing it. Cause I'm like, that doesn't make any freaking sense. Yeah, that's true. I've definitely started to write down ideas and then realized, Oh, this is like not an optimal way to design this algorithm or <laughs> there should be something, there's something missing here. So I've definitely gone through that process. Yeah. Or like, um, or I use a package in a way where like I wouldn't recommend others to do it. And I'm like, why would I design it that way? Where sometimes I like use the guts of some function in a way that like I wouldn't want the average user doing it. And it's like, could I just shore that up and make it better? Um, but anyway, I, I think, I think there's a lot of, I think this is, this is a huge problem and discussion in science because this is where everybody starts to hammer on the reproducibility crisis that they like to discuss over and over again. And I think it's because the incentives need to be aligned with 
reproducible research. And that, and, and, and no one wants to really, I think, own up to the fact that like reproducible research is like really, really hard. Yeah. Even like Docker containers, for example, like I'm not so sure 10 years down the line, you know, you'll be able to run something that depends on some binary from like 10 years ago. Like, I, I don't know. I, even like in the best of best worlds, like, <laughs> yeah. like we tried really hard and I, I'm just not so sure. Like, I think it's a great effort. And I think we as a scientific community are pushing more towards reproducibility, which is fantastic. But that being said, I feel like um, there are certain situations where it's just going to be really hard to be able to run a piece of code from 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I think Docker containers will give that solution. But the funny thing is Docker, right now at least, I believe you still need like root access. So when you go go to use that on like a computing cluster, you need root access. So you usually have to convert it to another containerized format like Singularity to even run it because that framework inherits the permissions of the person of the user. So it's just like they built it and it's like, I need to use it in a high performance computing environment, but like, Ooh, they don't let me do that. So it's just interesting. But so I think Docker containers might be the solution, but that's a pretty heavy handed solution. I mean, that, that's yeah. like, you're building, you're like handing over someone a new, com- a different computer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do think, right. Some of these things for sure. Like if you, I think uh, Hadley Wickham, I remember hearing like his rule of thumb was like, if you have to copy and paste something more than twice, make a function, you know, those are definitely skills that you, you learn along the way. And that's like an easy, hard and fast rule. But like thinking in a modular framework takes a lot of time and energy, um, I would say. What do you think? So we've got eight best practices yeah. here. What do you think is the most important one or the most relevant one for you um, as a developer, as somebody who writes code? So I think the first one that says write for programs for people, not computers, that's probably, I would say, the most important when you go to debug. But I kind of have that, I have a little bit of a caveat to that. I don't write software for, I don't write software for people. I write software for one person and one person alone, and that is me. So I try to write stuff. Find it useful. Exactly. If I find it useful, maybe somebody else will find it useful. And I do like to follow that up with that person. That other person is usually also me in six months. Yeah, I know. Right. Um, Like (laughs) it's and it's it's almost embarrassing, right? Like (laughs) six months later, you're like, oh, I don't know how to write this, or I don't know, I don't know exactly how this function works. And it's like, oh, who wrote it? It's like you, you did, you did. I think one of the biggest lessons for me when I was first starting out, it's kind of number six, um, optimize software only after it works correctly. I think um, when you're first starting to tackle these best practices, for example, it can be almost overwhelming, I found, at least to think about all the things that you have to do at the same time to really write high quality code, for example. And so things that would trip me up would be, I would spend so much time trying to think about like, all of the accoutrements, like all of the the things that I have to think about that I would, I wouldn't like first get to like just a basic working algorithm. Like I, like you have to get to a point where something is working. It might be simple. It might be the simplest case possible, um, but it's working. Right. And I, for me, I, I have to get to that point before I can start to think about all of these best practices um, that, you know, are crucial in the long run. 
But I think it's really important to make sure when you are writing code, either a software package or for data analysis, that you get to a point at the beginning, sooner rather than later, that something is working. Um, and so I guess for yeah. me, that was like a really fun, like a really important lesson. <laughs> yeah, I think a, a, a working solution is a million times better than an, an, an illegal, inelegant working solution is a million times better than an elegant not working solution, right? But there probably are people out there who, you know, can think about these things because they've done it so many times and they have such experience with it that it they can like think about doing these things while they're at, at that stage where they're trying to write that initial piece of code, just getting it working. Um, yeah. But I, it's, I'm not sure if I'm there yet, but I mean, for me, it's more iterative. Like I get to something that's working. I make some sanity plots, <laughs> check yeah. things out. And then I, then I start to make like, I guess like you could say incremental changes um, and incorporate all of these extra things that are really important. How do so you work? I think, yeah, I think that's a good question so, or a good point. So I think, you know, when you say those people think about that when they're designing, um, I would say a few things. Those people usually have a lot more time to design. And then the second yeah. thing is they usually copy stuff they've done from the past. So I've written a few packages to like interface, interface with APIs, right? Uh, like programming interfaces, like HTT, like rest, restful interfaces and stuff like that. And it's just like, Whenever I started, I'd be like, all right, I'm going to just copy this one over and then just start tweaking stuff. Um, and so it's not that I am, I am starting out much better than just if I started from scratch, but it's because I copied something over I did in the past. And I hope, yeah. I just hoped it was like a good design at that point. Um, that makes sense. But I, I think, I think the, you know, I've thought about, opt, you know, early optimization and uh, for a while, but I, I, I think there's a caveat to that that it's not just optimization and speed, right? Trying to make something fast before it actually works. It's also flexibility. So like when you're like, I want to wrap something that works, right? It's like, I feel like for me, a lot of times where I'm like, oh, well, what if somebody wants to put in this thinking thing or they want a flag or a switch here that allows them to do something different if this says yes or this says no. And like I get, I sometimes get mm, burdened yeah. down in there. And so I think that is also like a, kind of like a premature flexibility, right? It's like start very rigid. Your thing does one thing, <laughs> one thing, one way, one time, right? And then it can do other stuff or it can handle like small data, like little things and it works. And then you can build it out to be faster or more flexible or taking different objects, all that kind of stuff. So I think, I think a good probably caveat to that would be, or uh, idiom for that would be, Probably start your functions with like one to three arguments at the start at most. At most. Yeah. That's probably yeah. a healthy way to start. <laughs> and yeah. then you make these small incremental changes. Mm -hmm. like they yeah, say. that's right. Exactly. <laughs> now, version control, um, the concept of version control is critical here because I have been in many situations where I make some changes and two weeks later, I realize, nope, <laughs> or uh, the concept of branches inside of version control to being able to basically put a pause on a particular um, maybe like a piece of code or a software that you're writing and then like try to implement a crazy scheme you're like oh wow wouldn't that be really great if I like 
took this in a totally different direction. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But like just being able to like in one line of code, delete it and then like go back to the way it was or implement, yeah. like merge it back together and be like, wow, that actually worked. That's That's been a huge game changer for me in terms of being able to um, test out, I guess, ideas, I guess you could say. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and that, 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 uh, you know, I'm going to try this new thing. That's also can be, be doing, be, that also can be done by another person. So it's also like, Mm -hmm. Hey, what did you do? You broke everything. It's like being able to see like, no, we're, no, we're, we're We're sorry. We're not doing that. (laughs) We're going to do all this stuff. So it's like, not just yourself, it's others like without version control. It's, it's like, Oh, it's impossible to remember all the things you change in a file or a whole package. Very true. Okay, so this is interesting. Now I'm curious. How much do you think this is field specific? You brought up computer science, for example, and then you know we're in biostats. And I'm curious what you what your opinion is on how much do you think this is like all of these best practices? I'm, I'm guessing my suspicion is that certain fields prioritize certain best practices more than other fields. Um, and I'm curious, like how widespread people are implementing these best practices, like across fields. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting because, you know, the problem with the, with statisticians a lot of times we get, we get pretty much, uh, hung around our neck that like, we're like quote unquote bad software developers. Well, we're bad at naming things. I stand by that. Like, yeah, no, we're bad at naming things. Like we just are. (laughs) See, but the problem with the, the the thing that's so saddening about that is I don't th- I think a lot of statisticians' pun games are, are pretty good. They got a pretty good pun game going on, but they don't implement in that that in their work. No, I mean there are exceptions to the rule. I have seen you know some people write creative things that I was like, that's actually a good idea, but just they are the exceptions to the rule though. <laughs> Like in general, I find statisticians, I'm like, oh, why did you name it that? That's never going to be memorable. Like you got to think like, like think about the singular value decomposition or something. Like it would be like sieved or saved or something. Like it would have been a name of something. It wouldn't just be like the SVD, right? Like they would have been, we would have had like some punny, punny names if like, if that was like the precedent. Um, I mean, one hot encoding, if that's not like selling uh, it, like I just... (laughs) Indi- indicator variables. We one hot encoded it. It's like, man, that's cool. Like, it's not cool. It's you made ones and zeros, man. No, like but that, they marketed that. Like, you know, know. they thought about that. <laughs> Whoever thought about that and named it, I don't know who named who named it one, one hot encoding, but I'm just saying that was not a statistician. <laughs> I guarantee no, you that. Yeah. Like, uh, I I agree. Right? Like I, yeah, they like they, yeah. Oh, that's a good point. So we do get a bad rap for that intentionally, but um, I do think definitely. For example, right, optimize software only after it works correctly. Um, I do think, for example, if in a stat paper and a method, um, and they gave like an example code, it definitely does one thing well. Mm-hmm. But most times, it, that is the minimum and the maximum it will do. It does one thing, mm-hmm. right? So I think just getting the method out and not optimizing it is probably <clears throat> more important in in our field. Uh, I think, you know, we don't we don't necessarily have any you know uh, reliance on like cross compiling or anything like that. That's not incentivized. But I think 
now putting things out there is more um, valued, but I think it's probably even more valued in like a data science department for sure. Right. That, that is expected. That, that, I think that's the difference. It's expected in a data, data science department. It is um, probably valued in some biostat and stat departments and something, some department, they probably are like, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think this is pretty field specific is my suspicion. Um, what do you think is the least used thing on here or the least done best practice? My suspicion, just based on like my own, looking at my own coding, uh, would be code reviews. So I know how important yeah. they are and I know how great they are and I've done them, but I don't do them probably nearly enough. Um, it's very easy for academics to write code kind of in silo or maybe with a grad student. And I find faculty are not actively, I mean, maybe they are, uh, maybe, maybe there are like many exceptions to the rule, but in general, I find code reviews not implemented, at least in our field, in the academic no. world. I, I absolutely. I never see, I, I hardly ever see it. And the other thing is that, you know, you're saying like, we're making software. It's like a lot of times the grads didn't make the software right? <laughs> and, and it's, it's a catch 22, right? Like, I feel like you definitely would like a, a more junior student to do a code review of a senior student so they could learn, right? That's mm-hmm. a good learning exercise. But, um, you know, especially if that student's in classes and it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to, to really convey why this is important over like, should I be writing like two or three paragraphs on this other paper versus doing this? And it's like, I think long term probably yes, but in the short term it's it's really hard when especially when there's a crunch to be like, hey, like no, work on that paper mm-hmm. um kind of thing. Uh I agree. And <clears throat> I think that's the other thing we don't talk about in a lot of open source software is that when you make open source software, if other people use it, <clears throat> sometimes you get free code reviews for people being like, This is funky, don't do it this way. And you're like, Oh my gosh. Like, I, I think we don't yeah. talk about the upsides as much, but like, no, person to person sitting down code reviews in academic settings. I have not seen it frequently do, at all. I do know one lab um, that does this like as part of like, he has a um, lab expectations document, for example, and he's, he's very oriented in terms of making code reproducible. This is like a big thing for him. And he does require code review as part of contributions to packages in his lab GitHub repo. But that, that's like the only person I can think of that I know that formally does that personally. I'm yeah. sure there are others, but personally. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if it would also be a good exercise in like just taking critical, you know, or critiques. Well, like if you could like learn that a little bit, because you know, it is, it is really hard. It wouldn't be hard is not the right word, but it's, it's frustrating when you like put something out there. You're like, I think it's great. And somebody's like, this doesn't work right. And you're like, Ugh. um, but the, you know, co- a couple code reviews, one could maybe identify the bug or the, or the other thing. It's just like, Hey, I wouldn't do it this way. So you take like really critical kind of responses to people, but you know, it's constructive, you mm-hmm. know, it's trying to help things out because they're on your team. Right. Yeah. So it could be useful. Yeah. I mean, definitely useful, but. So I said code reviews. Do you have a different opinion or did it, was that your opinion as well about like the least, co- least commonly used best practice for academia? Um, I think 
uh, I, you know, there's a number seven document design, document design and purpose, not mechanics. When it says refactor code in preference to explaining how it works, um, refactoring code is, is, is a, is a chore, right? Um, and when you mean like something like when something changes or what do you mean by refactor? Like I'm saying, let's say you wrote the package, you wrote the paper, it does what you want, but it doesn't do it in like maybe the way you want it to exactly work, but it gets the job done. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about like refactoring is, is, is an undertaking. And, and when we say incentivize, right, you already have software out there that works like refactoring it. So it works better. That's even less, I would say incentivized unless you have a huge, a large user base or a large community really kind of clamoring for that. That's true. I can't think of too many packages that I have quote unquote refactored. Um, so that's probably very true. Yeah. Hmm. So, okay. So I have a question for you. So you've written packages, right? I, I, I've said I designed them for myself, right? I do them for other purposes, but like, why do you, why release your stuff into the wild? Why make methods for other people? Why? It's the same for like why I study what I do and why I do what I do. I like to help people solve problems, including myself. I like to actually dig down, understand what the problem is and and produce something, whether it's a method or it's a software paper or both, to actually help them. Um, and it it's not, you know, just me coming up with a new method and implementing it in a piece of software just to be able to say it's new. It's because like this is what's needed to actually like move past some obstacle. And so I write the software because I and when I write the software, I think about very hard that end user. I think of me when I was first starting to analyze data and I say, what's the best way that I can, for example, get this piece of code to them, like get it on their computer and allow them when they execute this function, allow them to learn something or like get past an obstacle that (laughs) was like a really big barrier previously. So for, for me, I do it because like, I really want to help science move forward. Now, am I like solving cancer by doing this? No. I mean, like, I'm not going to write a software. Is anybody solving? Is is cancer solved yet? Like, no, I mean, like, cancer is like 100 different diseases. I know. But I'm just saying, like, it's incremental. It's like incremental, but it's valuable. I mean, like, pushing the ball forward in science for me is why I do what I do. Um, I don't know. That's me. What about you? Yeah. Well, I guess also we should probably put open the, put on the caveat that like you and I pretty much open uh, develop open source software. Yeah, this right? is true. So, you know, I think the question is why do I develop open source software? And I think, you know, one, I, I'll, t- I'll be the first to say, it. if I develop something that I think would make me a lot of money, I will sell that for a lot of money. Like mm-hmm. that is fine. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of reasons I do it in an open source way. One, I, I, I work in, in R, which is an open source system. So I'm already working with code and things that like countless developers have put time, energy, sweat, tears into. So I want to give back to the community, right? Um, I am funded primarily on NIH grants and that is U.S. taxpayer money. And I personally believe they deserve partial access to the stuff I make. Um, just as a result of that, I mean, now 
There are people who have large disagreements, financial, (laughs) one way or the other. That should only go stay in the U.S., things like that. And if you could find a way to limit to only U.S. people, I still probably wouldn't do that. But like there isn't even an option to do that. The internet is far and wide. Um, And then I think it's also, you know, it. I have finished papers that I feel very proud of and felt accomplished with. I have finished papers where I feel like, okay, that's out there. I don't know what it's going to do. And then I will say that there are software that like at the end, I'm like, if people ask what I do, I can literally show them this. Like, this is another thing I can be like, look, look what it can do. Like, and it's, it's more interactive and things like that. So when somebody wants to tell me about their research, sometimes it's like, Hey, I made this thing that like, segments ahead like you want me to throw like a brain scan in there like look it did it like this software did it like i built that um so segments it's a different ahead, that feels like it's very out of context it segments a scan of a human brain um i little side story so i think you know because i work in neuroimaging uh, related stuff so i would say you know and I, I worked with clinicians on a clinical trial so they just that you know they they say things i'm like whoa uh that is like you're talking about a human there, like, yes, the subject. I'm like, okay, it's a little, little different. But, um, and, and, and the other thing we'd have these lunch meetings and, you know, we'd have presentations and every now and then we'd have a surgical fellow come in and I'm like, whoa, 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 we're eating, we're eating. Um, <laughs> but, but no, so I, I was talking at a conference or something like that, or I would give me a short course and I was like, yeah, so you slice the head in this direction. And I was putting my hand next, you know, like a deli slice, like a meat slice. And then somebody, I've like, been like, using that exact phrase for yeah. a, a project that I'm trying to explain to people. Yeah. I feel well, very so weird. <laughs> loaf of bread. Loaf of bread is usually a less um, evocative way but of thinking about it. The deli slice is very like, it there's is. a lot of imagery behind that. I'll say that. There is. And actually, if you've ever used, so I remember in, in, in undergrad, I used a freezing microtome on a sheep, I think it was a sheep brain. And we like literally sliced it like mm. with small slices. And it wasn't like a deli slicer, but like that's histology. That's what they do. But yeah, so, so like if I'm trying to describe like what's going on in an image, like you can show like, look at this software. Like I did that. That's cool. And some people are like, that's not cool. And I'm like, that's okay. You don't have to think it's cool. I think it's cool. Yeah. So um, you talked about open source. So I also write code for um, or contribute packages to um, a repository called BioConnector, and they are open source and open development. And um, I think it's worthwhile just mentioning the difference between the two. So open source meaning anybody can see it, anybody can like access it but open development, meaning anybody can contribute to it. And so there are um, packages that, you know, maybe are run by one lab, for example. Um, They might be open source, but they might not be open development. Like if you wanted to contribute to that, you might have to make a pull request. And then the, the original developer would have to then decide whether or not to accept your code or like whether they want to incorporate it or not. But open development, I really like as well, because then that community can really grow together. Um, I find also it's, it's worth mentioning at least. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's, that's, that's critically important. And I think that's a lot of reasons why some people don't put their, like they might do version control on Git, but not put it on an online server like GitHub. And the, and some people are like embarrassed or like they, they don't they don't feel comfortable putting it out there because I think a lot of people initially out of the gate think my code's not good. 
people are going to not think it's good or make fun of it or I'll get like some weird thing about it. And it, they see it in a very negative way or somebody or, or, or forbid someone finds a bug and it's like, it ruins like my results or something like that. And that's fair. Those things can happen. But mm-hmm. like, I don't think we also weigh that with the fact that like there are mil- billion, millions or billions of people who could have potentially see it. And guess what? They might fix a bug for you for free. Like you, you have the entire internet, um, being able to look at your stuff and like check stuff for you and give you feedback and things like that. And yes, the feedback's not always positive, but I don't think, I don't think we ever counterbalance that. Like, well, if you put it out there and you find a bug, we might have to do a retraction versus it might be something really interesting. And like, like people could make it better and make it into something it, could be with their help that it couldn't be otherwise. And I I just don't know if we have those discussions, frankly. Yeah. You bring up a good point. So I've been thinking about this. What, so if I'm a new, if I'm a R programmer, Python programmer, for example, um, and I haven't like made a pull request before, or I haven't written my first package or my first module, for example, what, and, and there's like clearly a barrier to getting over that. Um, whether it's, you know, I'm nervous or I'm intimidated or I have imposter syndrome or, um, whatever it is, like there's, I just, I don't have the knowledge yet. Like, what do you think would lower that barrier or lower or reduce that amount of imposter syndrome such that like, if, if I'm that person that would most easily enable me to make that first pull request or to contribute like a really simple package, because like in my own community at BioConnector, we're trying to think all the time about how to engage new users to convert them into developers. But we find, you know, there's a barrier and we're trying to figure out like, how can we lower the barrier as far as we can to be able to like get somebody to make just a simple pull request that maybe would inspire them to make a package um, or empower them to make a package. And I'm curious your thoughts on like what has been successful Mm. in your mind and getting people over that hump. So I think specifically pull requests or any of those things, I think a couple things. One, like if it is your first pull request, state that in there. You don't have to say like, this is really bad. You don't have to do deprecation. You don't have to say it's bad. (laughs) But like say that, like as, as someone who has accepted a number of pull requests, right? I would just... I'm not saying I, I'm not saying I'm harsh to anyone sending pull I accept them willingly and like happily. But some of them are like, you know, if you are getting a pull request from a seasoned developer. So I, requ- I, I send pull requests to this a couple repos that I'm just like, yeah, my style is not your style. And they're like, hey, could you just like keep it in the style of this package? And I'm like, sure. But like I don't do it and I forget about it. And they're like, hey, can you just make the style match? And I'm like, sure. And they can be curt and they can be very frank and then be very short with me. And it's fine because they know that like, I've, I've, I've sent a bunch of requests and things like that. But if, if I got a request like that and it was like, Hey, this is my first pull request, but I thought this was like a good addition. Right. I would take that. I would respond to that very differently. Right. Mm -hmm. So that that's one. And I would say two things, give them a no stakes pull request, right? Like literally be like, this is how you do it for like a re like if you're giving a short course, like everybody would have to do them by the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Right with like with their, their their neighbor or or a centralized repository, whatever. And then on the flip side, I would make them accept the pull request to actually show what it's like on the other side. Mm. 
Because mm-hmm. it's not like, and you you could, you know, do both, right? Give them a good pull request and like just the like 400 lines of white space were added in like 90 different places or like, you know, just small changes that weren't incremental or like 10 different features were put in there instead of like one or two, like those types of things be like, Hey, isn't that actually a lot harder to accept? Isn't that easier? And like, so you, you already make them developers or at least put them in the developer seat and see what it's like. Hmm. I like that idea. That's interesting. Okay. And then I would say one last thing is like, I wish, actually, you probably could do it. I could probably go to GitHub's API and find my my first one. Your first like Or your first one. That's or like, true. Or yeah. show me my first, or, or definitely show them my first sets of code that I put online, just see how much of a rat's nest that is. But that's probably another thing. I wonder if you could, I wonder if you could find your first pull request. That's true. Not sure I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> See, but that's the thing. That, that's what you're trying to combat. Like that that not it's not imposter syndrome, but it's like reservations about it. Right? Reservations. It's like, well, in my past, but I'd bet you Hey, everybody's got dirty laundry. Just because you're the one doing the instruction doesn't mean you have to air out yours too. I was teaching um a course last year and I was um demonstrating the GitHub API and I picked on myself, so I looked up all of my open GitHub issues as like part of the API. And I was like, oh, only like five. I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> I was like, I, I was a little nervous to look up this number. <laughs> yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. You pull it. It's like 4,000. It's like, that is, are you like an inbox zero person? Um, I try, but I'm not very successful at it. You're in like inbox zero, zero asterisk or something. Yeah, I'm like, like inbox 10 and I'm content. <laughs> yeah. I'm like an inbox infinity and like fine with that. And like, so I would do like 200, like I actually would probably sweat a little bit if I saw like 200 open issues or something like that. But like, if it was like 20, I'd be like, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> but I mean, I think that's true for academics in general, right? I mean, so I get GitHub, you know, I get requests all the time somebody will you know open up a github issue and say um this is either like not working or this is there's something weird or i want like can you implement this new feature or something and some of these or they maybe they have like a question or something and some of these like i just don't have time to do like i there's like it was it was a whole paper to like (laughs) like the first version of it so sometimes i'm like i'm sorry I know, and I just close it. But then sometimes I just leave it there thinking, oh yeah, I'll get to it. But then do I really? And so I sit in this world where the GitHub issues or the the version controlled issues, um, issue trackers, whatever you're using, are valuable because if somebody comes along and has the same question, you know, the history is there. And it's like nice to see if somebody's asked that question and if I've answered it, then great. But at the same time, I probably don't use it in an optimal way like a professional developer might, I guess. Yeah, GitHub has a lot of functionalities, milestones, like uh, we can talk about GitHub Actions, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I I see what you mean. I think of it also, I think of it also kind of as an email that's unanswered. Right. Like I I keep I keep like I keep some of them for a while in that inbox. I'm like, I'm never getting to that. But what would happen, I think it lends it more weight if somebody did respond to that and was like, hey, are we ever going to get to this? I'd be like, oh my God, they're still alive. Like they're still, they still care about this. Um, And that's why I like the idea of keeping an open issue because the average user is not going to probably look at closed issues, 
right? Or maybe not the average. That's that's probably a little unfair. Like maybe just a a, a new user or something isn't going to look at the 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 closed issues, um, and that. I like it because it's almost like a voting system. If like a bunch of people are like I have this issue too, I have this issue too, I have this issue too. I'm like, all right, like it's actually like a lot of people. It's affecting a lot more people than just one, and I probably need to get to it. Yeah, but I have a strict policy. I have a very strict policy that any package I have, if I am emailed about it, they have to send. They, they, I will. I, I have a boilerplate email I send back that says, "Thank you. Uh, please open an issue on this page." I will not respond to this email chain anymore so that, that it, it does help someone else hopefully in the future, unless it's like very specific, unless it's like I have this image and it's funky or they're like a student of someone I know. And it's not like directly related to the package. It's related right. to like, yeah. you know, something of our research and stuff. But otherwise I'm like, yeah, you, if okay. you care that much, post an issue. Post an issue. I know we, I, so I work into the biofix community and we have a support site. And anytime I get that email, I'm like, no, I'm not responding to this email. I mean, I tell them, I say, I'm not yeah. responding to this email anymore. Here, go to the website. I will respond if I can. <laughs> okay. One last question. Um, yeah. How can we better incentivize academic data scientists to implement these best practices in your opinion? And I'll, I'll sh so there's like the negative side of it, which is like, if you see somebody, if you see a package or you see some code that doesn't have very good best practices or is maybe not of a high enough quality or standard. I've heard the argument that we should, sh like the community should shame them. Like the community should call them out and basically that will incentivize them to like get on board and meet the standard. I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just saying like that <laughs> I've heard this argument before. Um, so A, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. And then B, if you had thoughts on like how you think it would be better, or it might be, how do you incentivize like your collaborators to do this? Yeah. Um, that, so shame is a, shame is a, is a very sharp sword. Uh, right? I know. So, but I will say this, if I was shamed, hands down, I would do it. You like would I, do I, it. that would motivate me. But I think, so I am a very strong negative reinforcement um, motivator. So if someone says I can't do something, that just I it have a burning passion and anger to do it. Like <laughs> I'm it's not like sure you're really, really, you don't think I can do that? I'm going to do that. Um, like up to a point. So I think positive reinforcement learners. And I don't think the world is just black and white like that. But like that actually is very uh, damaging to them. Um, I, think I think to a certain extent it will alienate a good portion of yeah, the population absolutely. who might consider <laughs> you know contributing code like I'm I am so afraid of that path also if you're a junior um data scientist or faculty member or postdoc like if you start calling people out and just start shaming them like you will build a brand or like a reputation around this and I'm not sure that's yeah. like healthy I guess if you're senior and you know you've got nothing to lose and, you know, you've kind of built your brand over time, like maybe you're willing to spend that political capital and start shaming people. <laughs> but so I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how frequent though. So like, here's the problem. Shame does have a place in my opinion. Shaming for sure has a place like where there is no other lever to pull. Like there are, there is 
bad science being done. Bad. Okay, but if there's bad science, you email that. Like if there's a publication, like you email the editor, right? Like and, you- and and a lot of journals, there's no incentive for them to retract that, right? Yeah. Why would they? It's getting it's getting eyes on their journal, even if it's and and if it's not, and they might just and one or two people that's like, well, they think it's bad science, but like it's you know we stand behind it, right? So I'm saying shame does have value, and it's 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 usually a last resort because nothing else. It, like there are no more levers to pull. Like you can, like you can say email an editor, and they say, you know what, we think it's fine. Um, you email their department, and there's no incentive, especially if that person's fully tenured or a senior or well respected in that thing. It's like there's there's no incentive for them to do anything, right? And there's no other levers to pull other than the community. And so, but that is usually pretty extreme. Um, and also there are very few, I mean, not very few, but there are a few cases where it's clear cut and that's what you should do. I think a lot, some of the things that that recommendation sounds like, that is like personal preference, like shaming someone for someone, the way they like to do stuff or like not having the time or energy to fix it. And like, yes, those, it's just, you're going to get someone digging in harder or just like, fine, I'll pull up my stakes and I'll go home. I will take it offline and I'll take it off your repo. That is fine by me. Right. I, I, I've seen this, like, not so much like in a personal setting, but like, just, this is the response from like what we should do. So, okay, let me give you an example. So preprints, for example, on BioArchive, sometimes they, um, they say my code is available in this GitHub repo or the data are available on this website. And maybe it's like in the process of happening, but like when you immediately go download the preprint and, and you're like, nope, it's not there yet. Maybe like in a couple of weeks it'll be there, but you don't, maybe in the, the authors are like on the way um, of doing it. And, or maybe they wanted to just like get an idea out there. So they preprint it, but they're not going to release their code or their data um, until like they actually publish it. And mm-hmm. so that's, you could like, I, I've seen the argument that we should shame those people. We should call them out and say, this is bad practice. If you're pre-printing something, um, then you should release the code, for example. Now, there's no, like, if they say that in the paper, if they say, like, we're releasing the code and the data and it's available here. Um, and so I, I'm just, and that's like a, that was somebody like in a professional setting saying this. And I, I struggle with that. I, I think fine. If that's what you think, fine. But one, then okay, I won't put up a preprint. Or like one, you don't know the culture of their department, even they're in bioinformatics. Like if they're in a school of medicine, it is com- it's sometimes completely like they, they, people would lose their minds if they found out you were actually putting a preprint up. The other that's thing true. is like certain conferences actually have real, real embargoes on that's data true. releases and things like that. And if you if you go against that, they will ban you from the conference for like three to five years or like but at then, least a, then a don't few. don't put up a preprint, I guess. Like, I mean, but, that, but those that's do, true. They, like, they kind of cheat the system. That's true. But I personally think you are picking on a subset where you should be hammering the journals that allow – Avail data available upon request where no one answers request. They they say there's code available, but there's not there. It's like you are fighting the good fight, but you're I think you're picking the fight with the wrong people. Mm, that's a fair point. That's and fair point. That's depending on 
And especially if those are junior authors or graduate students, you are punching down pretty hard. Because if you're going to punch hard, you should be punching at the senior authors on that paper or the people who make the, the strong decisions and not the usually the first author or the graduate student who put up the preprint. Yeah. Okay. So I've gotten way off topic now. Uh, okay. So we've <laughs> talked about shaming. So what, so I can give you my take on how to incentivize, um, mm. but I, I don't know if I've, um, if you've already said yours, sorry if I missed it. No, no, no. I think, I think. Lastly, like you should just show like, I don't think we have a good running list or a good example, but it's just like, here are the papers that make methods that don't have, you know, um, software associated. Here's the ones that do. It's like, look at the differential based on citations, based on readership, based on downloads, or like, look at these grants. They were built around software, right? Like, and, and lastly, now that we talk about this, you know, you know what we don't have? We have a lot of good awards in, in like internal to our institution. Um, and many institutions have these for mentorship, for education, for just best research, things like that. We do not have anything in, in, uh, that I know of, at least in our school or in a university, that is targeted. This is the best software of that year. No, or, I don't, or, I've never heard that. Mm-mm. So, I mean, and, and, and some conferences really like, like prioritize that and try to incentivize that. They're usually much, you know, study section specific kind of, Mm -hmm. but I think that also can get out there. We're like, Hey, you do good software and you might not write the, you might write okay papers, but you do fantastic software. Like get those people awards on their CVs. That's what people read. I agree. Especially academic data scientists. I mean, they prioritize that type of work and it would be really valuable to, have awards um, commending them for implementing these best practices. So. All right, I have. A, I I'm gonna. I'm I'm putting in a proposal today to have the John Michelli 2021 <laughs> best software, best piece of software award in our department. And I'm gonna see if I can if I can. They'll they'll allow me to pay that out of a discretionary account. And if so, we are having one this year. That's an amazing initiative. I would totally support that. Oh, then you then your reviewer already signed up. I got one reviewer with me. Check. Boom. <laughs> okay. Before I forget, my my take on incentivizing, I yeah. think one way of doing it is to just explain it. So I find a lot of people when they um, are working on implementing writing software, they're overwhelmed and they don't really know how to do it. And so just showing them or making it as easy as possible for them to be able to implement these best practices. So like yeah. the um, use this or test that package in R, for example, yeah. um, makes it easier to write unit tests, for example, or yeah. I, so I co-organize um, a, a meetup group, a local meetup group called Our Ladies Baltimore. And one of the reasons I do, I do this is because I am very aware that if I show the community here in Baltimore um, how to, for example, make an R package, then I'm hopeful that by demonstrating how easy it is to do it, that they will feel less overwhelmed or less intimidated. And then they'll go back and they'll do it in their own setting because they see the value of how other people might perceive or judge their software. But just getting them over that hump of just explaining it, um, I have found helps incentivize 
uh, individuals to do to implement these best practices. And it's it's just like education. I mean, it's just lowering the the bar yeah. to a point where somebody feels comfortable enough to do it. Yeah, that that makes that makes me think of a. So I listened to a Stephen King uh, podcast uh, about the Dark Tower series, which is one of my favorite books, oh, series, I didn't book know that. series of all time. Um, but one of them, I, I forget who the quote was by, uh, but it was a well known author. And it wasn't Stephen King, but it was, it was, you know, if you want to read, you, you read, go out and, and to your local bookstore and just like read someone you've never heard of, just like an average author, like not even maybe a bestseller, anything like that. And like read it and like think a bit, a bit critically while you're reading it, if it's good or bad. And if it's good or if it's bad, it doesn't matter. It's just like this person made a book. They wrote, they sat down, they took time, they took energy and they wrote it and they put it out there and they published it. Like, mm -hmm. like that in itself is a huge feat. And so I think also a lot of times when people go to develop software, right? I think in our field, like Hadley Wickham's fantastic, Iwaji, like all the people at our studio, Jenny Bryan, my gosh, like they, they put out fantastic stuff. Jim Hester, like their, their whole community is amazing. The stuff they produce is, is fantastic. Like I could list like a hundred other names, but like 20 of them produce like immaculate software. Mm -hmm. Right. Like the, like for our, like some of the best stuff that's ever been out there. Mm -hmm. Right. And not, and not to, not even talking about John Chambers and the entire R core, like just all those people. And it's just like, but there is a sea of just regular developers. Like we have what 12,000 packages. I consider myself a regular. <laughs> right. But like, that's fine. Like, so I think when you go to sit down and do your first package, like maybe look at a package you may use, maybe not, but like, Go try to look at an average developer, not the packages that are downloaded 4 billion times, right? Not the packages that are used by the entire thing, but like maybe look at some of them that are just like an average package, right? And you can get some of these download statistics, try to shoot for the middle and like look at the internal code because it's not going to be always beautiful. It's interesting though. Like how, so if I'm a new R user, how do I know what's an average package? Like it almost requires like experience in the field or having somebody tell you, right? Uh, yeah, no, that's true. But I think, you know, that's, that's a good one. There's a cran there's a, there's a download statistic uh, package for some of these things. So I wonder if you could just say like median, like what's the median download package now? Like what's, what's the averages you can get? <laughs> Right. I'm curious to know what that package is now. Uh, yeah, now I am too. Like who's who's the current median? So that's what we should do. We should just set up a Twitter bot that like the median package right now is this. That's true. Yeah. That's yeah. true. We have to adjust for like how long the package has been like out. That yeah, that that is a problem with download statistics. So you do the last month. You do downloads in the last month or something yeah. like that, sometime. Um so yeah, I think I think those things might be good, but the other thing is, you know, it's, it's a hard message to send, but like, just do it, just try it. And like, you gotta, you gotta go, go out of your comfort zone a little bit and throw your stuff out there. And like, I hate to break it to you and tell you the secret, but like most people aren't probably going to find it and see it and give you a bunch of bad reviews. It's just going to go up there and kind of be hanging out there for a long period of time. And if it catches wild, then all the better. Yeah. And on the upside, you help somebody. I mean, you made somebody's life easier, better. So Yeah, and it's usually yours. I know. <laughs> right? So true. I'll close it on my end with one last thing. So I I, I, I 
wrote a package to do like the segmentation stuff and CT. And it was a lot of work to, to get all the pieces together. And finally it was done. And, um, then about a year or two later, we got some new data in and, um, my, uh, my collaborator gave me the data and I turned it around really quickly. And, uh, he's like, Hey, this is like, this took, that was, that was really quick. And I was like, yeah, it only took like three years. Yeah. And he's like, what are you talking about? I was like, that's how long like I felt like to like get that package to like stable and working and like be able to do this quickly and like implement all these things, and, like make it fast and make it run. It's like, yeah, it was super quick today, but like all that stuff is back in the, the taillights that you didn't say. It's the same for me. I just published a package and um, not, I just published a paper for a package that we wrote on Bioconductor. And it's a, it was a three-year project to develop the package and to benchmark it and to be able to, like, with complete confidence, be able to assess, like, and compare how amazing it is. But it was a three-year process. I mean, <laughs> sure, I changed jobs. I made it, like, like things have yeah. happened. <laughs> Had a kid, but, like... Uh, but it was a three-year process. Like, <laughs> yeah, that, that's not to say any of those things would have made it faster if they didn't happen. You still would have probably taken three years, right? Like, yeah, but it was worth it. It was worth it. Yeah. We got the feedback from the reviewers, and they were like, "We are absolutely floored at like how much effort you took to like make this like really go the extra mile." And we're incredibly appreciative, and this is clearly going to help the community. And I was just like, somehow that made it all worth it. Yeah. <laughs> And then, and then the first time you see someone respond or like, I use this in a paper, you're like, that is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> All right. Uh, All right. We'll end it there. That sounds great. Take care, everyone. All Bye. Right. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at correspondauth or my handle is strictlystat and Stephanie's is Stephanie Hicks. And you can email us at thecorrespondingauthor at gmail.com. This episode was edited by Jessica Crowell, and special thanks to the Data Science Lab for their help and support.